Hey guys, today we have Sarah Salasat back for round two. Sarah just wrote a book and we got almost to the end of the interview before we realized we had forgotten to tell you guys the name of the book. How are you going to find it if we don't tell you the name of it? So right up front, I want to let you guys know it is Welcome to the Foster Lane, Parenting Advice from a Coach Who's Been There. You can find Sarah's book on Amazon, Book Baby, everywhere that books are sold, Barnes and Noble, all the cool places. Go there, find it, buy it. Learn from it. Sarah is a wonderful, wonderful resource to, to reach for. And you can find her if you need to get a hold of her personally. It's Sarah at thefosterlane.com. The ebook comes out on May 21st, which is tomorrow as I record this. It's a few days ago when you hear this. So by the time you hear it, the ebook will be out. The harder back, or I'm sorry, the paperback version will be out June 25th. And this is as we're recording this, that's 2021. Um, you guys can get it there. You can go ahead and pre-order it now. So I suggest you do that. So as soon as it comes out, you can get your hands on it. Foster Care Nation, listen up. This is Foster Care and on Paralyzed Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. And today we have ourselves a returning guest. We have Sarah Salasat back. Sarah is a licensed level four foster parent and a PCI certified parent coach, which makes her sound way cooler than us, doesn't it? Yeah, a lot cooler. <laughs> How, are you doing? How are you doing today, Sarah? I'm good. How are you both? Not as cool as you, apparently. <laughs> I don't know. Hey, we can it sounds cooler. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. And we also get to add onto that list an author now too, because we had Sarah on here a while back and she, we talked about a lot of stuff. It was a great conversation. So if you haven't heard that one, go back and listen to it. But Sarah had talked about a book she was working on and she has got that done and it's getting ready to launch. And as we record this, we are like, just a few days out of the ebook launch, it launches May 21st, the, this year of 2021. And the paperback book comes out in June, June 25th of 2021. Did I get those right? You did. Absolutely perfect. Absolutely wonderful. Because I have got like four or five books written in my head. And I have at least 10% of one on paper somewhere. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> So you're way ahead of me. You're way ahead of me. <laughs> what prompted you to write this book? Well, we talked about it a little bit the last time I was on the show, but our start to foster care wasn't great. It was not, we needed support and it was not available. And so I ultimately wrote the book I wish I had when I was getting started fostering and the book that I wanted to be reminded of throughout my fostering journey. Yeah, that would have been nice to have. How come you didn't do this like 12 years ago, Sarah? <laughs> well, <laughs> I wasn't involved in foster care at that point. Do you like how he's kind of shifting some blame here? <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's not my fault I was dumb. Notice I said was dumb. 
right? Yeah, well, we'll see. Jerry <laughs> might still be out. Well, you shipped, shipped us an early release copy of the book, and I'm not going to lie. I did not have a chance to read the book because Amanda had it, and, well, work gets in the way and stuff. But she That's went fair. through the book, and she was over there taking copious notes and going, hey, this is pretty good stuff. So um, when, you, when you got this, this book started, I'm just curious, was this something that you were able to blow through because it was like a labor of love, or was this a struggle for you to get through? Interestingly enough, the I wrote the book faster than all of the follow-up pieces for going through editing and book cover and you know launch and all of that. The book came together relatively quickly, and we were visiting a child that we had placed in our home at a at a residential facility, sitting down by the water, and I said, you know what, I need to write this book. So I sat down with a notebook. I wrote out each of the chapters, um, just the headings and or chapter titles, and then went through and figured out specifically what information I wanted in each chapter. And then it was a matter of like getting myself to sit down and write. That was the hard part. I was hoping you'd say that's the easy part. That's the part I struggled with. <laughs> Yeah, I had the idea. I knew what I wanted to say, but between parenting teenage girls and running a business and all of that, finding time to write was the biggest struggle. Yeah, I bet you have a lot of time wrapped up in this. Yeah, absolutely. Because absolutely. When I tried writing, I, I would get up an hour early in the morning and sit because I get up ridiculously early anyways for work. And so sure. I would get up at two o'clock in the morning and the house, it's the only time of the day that my house is quiet. I don't know about your house. <laughs> Sometimes it's questionable at 2 a.m. That's not wrong, but <laughs> it's my best shot. And, and I, I would, I've sat and wrote quite a bit during those times and it's just difficult for me to, to get through it. So I am glad that you had more um, gumption about it than I did because I kind of gave up a long time ago, but when you when um when you're writing this book, who's this written to? Is this to foster parents, to biological parents, to to a, a collection of parents or adoptive? So who's your your target audience here? Interestingly enough, it's any parent to a child in foster care. So um, I think when I originally had the idea for the book, I wanted to write it to myself as a foster parent, and exactly what I was looking for. And as I got deeper and deeper into the book, I realized that every caregiver for a child in foster care could really use the information and the support that I think the book offers. So, Was there some crossover there between uh, adoptive parents as well? Because I know a lot of kids who are adoptive struggle with a lot of the same things that kids in foster care do. Although it's, it's, not, a, it's not parody, you know, they're not equal, but there, there are some crossover there for sure. Absolutely. And some of my pre-release readers uh, don't have any connection to foster care at all. They are parents of typically developing children. They had a typically developing family. And they're like, oh my gosh, I can use this for my family. And I thought that was really neat because ideally the book was written to foster adoptive or biological parents, but people that I sent the book to across the country, they were like, I can implement this at my house, which I thought was really cool. 
first off, I'm just going to say I'm a little bit jealous of of some of your early release readers if they are um, typically developing families. <laughs> oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> because even our biological kids, I don't think they met that criteria, did they? No, probably not. <laughs> don't worry they don't <laughs> listen to us you can say you can tell the truth on here i don't know every once in a while they might you know i, I was talking with amanda about the this book though and and one of the questions that she had come up with here is is the idea of like why do so many false or so many parents in general but foster parents especially feel so alone on this journey yeah, it's it's an interesting piece and it's something the more foster parents that I talk to, the more I hear this messaging repeated over and over and over again. And I think the reason is because people don't get it. They don't understand what it's like to parent a child who's experienced trauma. They don't get what it's like to deal with trauma behaviors or reactive attachment disorder behaviors or, you know, rages or anything like that. And after they give some advice and, you know, this is what I would do. And the foster adoptive parent is like, yeah, no, that's not going to work here. They're just like, well, I don't know what to do anymore. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to support so I'm going to kind of step back. And then all of a sudden, foster and adoptive families look around and they're like, where'd everyone go? Like, here I am alone. And then they have to try and rebuild a sense of community. You have no idea how familiar that story is. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if I go way back to when I was, what, late teens, early 20s, something like that, I was the second kid in my family. And so my sister had kids before I did. And I would sometimes offer her advice because she was obviously not doing it right. And I can look back now and I, I don't know how much time you spent in the South, but I, I look at, at the younger version of me and I just want to pat myself on the head and say, oh, bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> I think the best parents are adults without kids. Absolutely. I think, I think that's just the best parent. Right. Yeah. They so have all the answers. What you don't have. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that, that was something that, that I've, I've learned that as we go through this journey, because we've had kids with reactive attachment in our house, we've had kids with some pretty significant traumas in our house and, and some stuff that we didn't know what we were dealing with. You know, this kid shows up and you're two weeks in and you still don't have much of a clue of their real story, their real traumas and all that. And, and you're trying to work your way through it. And, you know, your friends and out in public somewhere, you meet them and they see what's going on and, and they want to give advice and you, you want on one hand, like it's, I get it, man. You're trying to help. And I appreciate that. On the other hand, I want to smack you upside the head and say, shut up, stupid. You don't know what you're talking about, but neither one of those really, really serve us well, but you're right. It, it's left us in a lot of situations feeling like we're just, just sitting there alone. Absolutely. And I've actually done that where people have been giving unsolicited advice and you know, when you're just a little bit too tired and a little bit too hungry and someone says, well, if that were my kid, well, that's happened to me a few times. And I just turn and I'm like, but it's not. And you have no idea what we're going through in our house. So just mind your business. And people also don't appreciate that. <laughs> so that is also a little bit isolation making. I still like the idea of the thump upside the head at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and the other part of that question of parents feeling so alone on the other side of it, 
you know, why don't parents reach out? To who? Who are they supposed to reach out to? Right. To who and how and, and judgment and yeah. And if you're drowning, are you really the person who should be like, hey, lifeguard, can you come save me? Or is it someone else to see like, wow, that person is having a really hard time. Let's offer some support. I I think I was born in the wrong generation. Like I'm the kind of person where someone just had a baby or they, you know, have a medical diagnosis or something. And I'm going to make casseroles and drop it off at your house for like three months, every week for three, four months. And I think people just, they don't know what to do to support people who are having struggles the way they did in generations past. Well, in that case, we just had a kid and I need some casseroles. <laughs> You're a little far away, <laughs> but cookies I could probably do. You can Those ship well. overnight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. It's been a little little too long since the last time I, maybe I need to, to pay attention to that. <laughs> but you're right we, we just don't really know how to how to support one another we don't do it well we're not good at community building in this time i mean right now if you go google search community building i'm gonna bet good money it's gonna talk to you about how to build a good facebook community oh i'm sure and like to amanda's point like why is it the person who's struggling? Why is it their responsibility to tell everybody the best way to help them? Because they're already overwhelmed. So now we're adding more burden onto them to help us. When in fact, there are books out there, I've read them that say these are the best ways to support people who are struggling. Cook them a meal clean their bathroom, pick up some groceries, you know, babysit. And even in the times of COVID and just being cautious, there are things that people can do. And it's very simple to say, you know what, I'm going to bring your family dinner tonight. What flavor profile do you like? Then they just get to pick, you drop it off on their porch and you hightail it out of there. Right. Yeah, I don't know if we want to let them clean our bathroom. We have five boys oh. that use that bathroom. Yeah. I don't know who wants to clean that bathroom. No None of them. <laughs> and if you're going to do it, you need to bring your own power washer. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason I have my own bathroom. Amen. Amen. But yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying, though, because, I mean, quite honestly, like, yeah, I, and I talk about this probably a little too much, but I work a 60-hour-a-week job most weeks. Mm-hmm. We have a house full of kids. We have buckets of trauma. We're trying to run a podcast. I spend way too much time trying to work on this. I'm a super smart guy. So I've decided there's a second topic that I want to talk about. So I'm just in the process of trying to work on a second podcast. (laughs) When do I have time? Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support. If you could share an episode with people, friends, in a group, with family, anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash foster care nation. Now back to the show. And one of the first things that gets tossed out is that building friendship things. Cause let's be honest as adults, we're not good at that. Mm-mm. At seven years old, we, you hit the playground running and like, 
this kid over here, he didn't throw rocks in your face and he played with you. So that's my buddy. Now let's go, let's go, let's be friends. And we go spend some time and just have a good time together. And it's somewhere along the line between seven years old and where I am today, I think I've lost that skill set. And we just don't have these, these support systems built up around us, a community of friends who really tend to, to care about you, you know, unless, unless you happen to be in a, in a church group somewhere where you have a, a significant connection there, there's not a whole lot of other communities that, that we're a part of that really connect on that. Absolutely. And Oprah and uh, Dr. Bruce Perry just released a book this month called What Happened to You. And in the book, they talk about the fact that in years past, there were four adults to one child to offer support and to help that child grow up. And that was more of an ideal ratio, right? Because each of you have different strengths and then other people have different strengths to help raise those children. And now we have generally single people or potentially coupled up individuals raising multiple children. The ratio is all backwards and we don't have a community with us. I know most days we're pretty overrun here. Our ratio is not acceptable most days. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, and that's the thing when you are out of ratio like that and, you know, Jason's talking about his chaotic schedule, you know, it's, we run from crisis to crisis, you know, Mm -hmm. and you patch and you patch and you patch to try to make it to the next spot. Mm -hmm. And eventually all those patches, they blow up. Absolutely. I compared to playing whack-a-mole. Like you're just constantly hitting them all back down and it just pops up in a different direction. It never ends. Yeah. in those crises and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's almost like being a fireman, you know, you're just mm-hmm. trying to, to run across the, the city of San Francisco during the, what was that a long time ago now, the back in the, the early part of the 20th century, when they had the, the big fire down there, it's, it's like trying to run from one structure to another on different sides of town to put out all these fires and you're never going to get them successfully all handled. Right. Not without support. And that's, that's been a struggle that, and that's part of the reason I thought this was such an important book that you've written is because I I don't think we're alone in this. I I know we're not, you know, we have a support group here in our area and guess what? They meet on Saturdays, Saturday morning, which is great. It's a convenient time for most people. I happen to work on Saturday mornings every Saturday, so I'm not going (laughs) and Mm -hmm. Amanda's here with a house full of kids. And so she's probably not going to drag that many kids with her. So, right we're left that much more out of the, out of the loop of help. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not, you know, nothing, nothing against the group that they're doing what makes sense for the, for the most people there. But we have this, this problem where we're fighting crises at every turn. We mm-hmm. never have the opportunity to sit down and take a breath and actually live in the moment. Right. And I think that's, that's a root of a lot of the anxiety and depression. That's because I don't think it's just us. Right. You don't need to be a foster parent to have that struggle. But once you take those struggles and, and add the struggles of foster care and kids who've been in crisis on top of it, I mean, you get, you get to those, to those places where, man, it's overwhelming. So, you know, when you have, when you have parents who are dealing with this, what, what would you say to a foster parent who is in the middle of crisis, who's, who's walked in to find out that, you know, for whatever unknown reason, everything blew up, you know, and I, 
I have a story I I'm tempted to tell, but I, I think for for privacy's sake, I, I'm just going to let let it be. But suffice it to say, we came in and found out that our kids were in a situation that could have easily ended up being fatal, perhaps even. And mm-hmm. it was based entirely around one kid who hit his team. He, he hit his, his crisis point. He was, he was in the middle of a fight or flight moment mm-hmm. and everything went crazy sideways in the moment. And we weren't there to deal with it until, and you know what, 20 minutes afterwards. So we come home and, and this is all of a sudden I'm thrown in this, holy crap, I have to deal with this big thing over here, which caused a little thing with each individual kid. Yeah. So we have all these relationships interrupted and, and here a man and I stand going, what the hell? They do not <laughs> write a book about this. No, no, they do not. Um, little bits and little parts of little different books, but what I generally remind families and if you've looked up the handy model of the brain, I can show you because you can see me on video, but the listeners can't. But if you take your hand and you put your thumb by your palm and then you close the fingers on top, it's a handy model of the brain. It reflects your brain really well. And your thumb ends up being the amygdala and your fingers end up being your prefrontal cortex. And when fight, flight, freeze, or dissociate, uh, happens that like your fingers kind of go up they call it flipping your lid and you can no longer be rational or think things through or be talked down because the part of your brain that allows you to do those those aspects is offline so very often parents and caregivers and teachers and everything they see this child in crisis and they just want to calm them down by talking about it when in fact it doesn't work because the part of the brain that would allow that to happen isn't online. It's like if someone that spoke Chinese started speaking to me, telling me to calm down, I wouldn't be able to understand what they were saying. And our kids can't in that moment. So it's finding different ways to interrupt that cycle. and. My favorite is to use uh, sensory input, such as chewing on ice cubes or something with a really high, um, like a flavor profile, like really, really spicy things or holding on to ice or moving your body, you know, quite a bit, something sensory like that to start to bring that prefrontal cortex back online because without it, It doesn't matter how many wonderful words you say, you're not getting through and you're not going to fix it. And it can take up to 24 hours when someone goes in a dysregulated state to be fully regulated. So even two hours later, if you try and talk about it, that child could be re-triggered and then you could be way back up to that state. So you just have to be able to, to manage and to kind of recognize, but yeah, they, they don't really write books about that. You know, that's interesting. I love those ideas because to date, the only one I've really found much success with, with most of my kids is to work on, on bringing them out of the amygdala and mostly by using things like breathing exercises. And now once you have a teenager, getting them to do that is, I mean, you may as well just give up. It ain't happening. Do you want to know what my favorite strategy for that is? What's that? 
take their favorite song and have them scream sing it. Because when you scream sing, you are still doing very deep breaths. So you expel your breath, you know, when you're saying the words and you have to take a very deep breath back in, in order to be able to sing the next verse. So it's a way to trick teenagers into deep breathing. Um, And I've done it in grocery store or not grocery store, uh, restaurant parking lots with a teenager who was entirely dysregulated. I put on, um, oh, what is it? I don't know. It was a Katy Perry song. And put it on full blast and everyone who's going into this restaurant is looking at me like what are you doing and it's like I don't care I really want tacos so we got to calm down here (laughs) and this is the best way we're gonna do this mama is getting tacos tonight (laughs) exactly that's awesome I love that because yeah for the most part you know it works well with my two youngest who are six and seven. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. If, if that wasn't a statement so much as it was a question, obviously, <laughs> but, but with those guys, I, I have started working with that and, and uh, from a very young age. But I mean, the good thing is, is everybody identifies with music, some type of music, you know, just mm-hmm. last night in the car, you know, we have a kiddo who deals with a little bit of dissociation and a song came on and from the vaccine, I hear, mom, I got it. This feeling. And he was just so extremely excited because the song took him back to a time when he was happy and safe. And he was able to recognize that. And it was like, oh yes, a friggin' win. And I was going out to get steak and shake. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you wanted to win at that point. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But and for him, that's a big win because that that's something that that his um, we have him doing some play therapy right now, and and something that his uh, his therapist has talked with us about quite a bit, and that's the dissociation. And again, it's a lot of these big words with all these different diagnoses that that tend to look like all kinds of problems and behaviors. But it's it's something that when you begin to understand it as as a parent, you can go, oh, holy crap! I can use this. We can actually we can, we can use this and. And he can learn to re-regulate himself so much quicker and easier. And Absolutely. the fact that he was able to name up an emotion and, and tie it together, that, that's a big win for him. And I think it's a big win for a lot of kids because it's not the sort of thing that most kids really have on their radar. Yeah, maybe that's the way to put it. A lot of kids don't, mainly because a lot of adults don't. Um, I, the majority of the adults I work with don't have a lot of emotional (laughs) intelligence, um, and a lot of connectedness to their, their personal emotions, which is why in the book, one of the things I talk about is a feelings chart. And I had a chart drawn, um, both a simple one and a more detailed one because kids learn their emotional regulation from their grownups. And if their grownups are either denying what they're feeling, and kids can tell, if you're mad and you say you're fine, they know you're mad, but it confuses them for like what they're supposed, like how they can process emotions. And so if we want to teach kids emotional regulation, we have to learn it ourselves first. It's funny you mentioned that word. I call that the F word in our house. Fine is always the F word. If you, anybody who ever says I'm fine, 
And, you know, I, I don't know about your experience in, in life, Sarah, but I know that in my house, if I ask my wife <laughs> how she's doing and she says, I'm fine, it usually means, I'm yeah, not fine. <laughs> tread lightly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's good labeling at the F word because that is a tricky one for sure. Yeah. And I, I'm glad that you um, brought up the feeling board because that was actually, that was one of the notations that I had made that I wanted to talk to you about because I find that that is so helpful if we can teach our kids how to feel their emotions and to be mm-hmm. able to express that our one little one, he'll come over here to the computer and he'll be like, show me the faces, daddy, show me the faces. And so he'll have to open up Facebook and yeah. he wants to pick out which face is how he's feeling. It's show me the mm-hmm. thumb, show me the That's thumb. That's what it is. The thumb you mouse over the thumb and it shows you all the, all the different emotion faces, all the little reaction emojis. Sure. If you want the the images that are in the book, if you want that as a PDF, I can send it to you. Okay. Um, I have them in color as well, and you can print them off. Kids love it because everybody feels their feelings. It's just whether or not other people are going to meet them where they are with them. Right. And honestly, pretty much anyone who comes to our house writes their name on our feelings board and writes their feelings because everybody wants to be seen for their personal experiences. There's just not that many opportunities in the world today. You know, it's, it's interesting. You brought up dissociation earlier and, and we mentioned, you know, the one kiddo, but I, I would have to say part of what he has experienced is he's learned that because it's been modeled well for him. Because when, when the, the uh, play therapist started talking about it, she sent to us a uh, questionnaire as parents to fill out. And I sat down and filled that out and Amanda had already seen it. And she said, I'm really curious to see what you put in here. And I got to the end of it and went, holy crap. <laughs> I might need to pay attention to this because I am really good at that. And so I, when you mentioned everybody feels their feelings, I think there's some of us who choose not to. And, and when I, when I see that in, in a kid, it looks one way. When I see it in me, I call it. So I, I just say, you know, I'm, I'm level headed. I'm even keeled. I'm not, very emotionally excitable, but it's taken a while to realize that I need to look for that in him and realize he's learning some of those skill sets from me. And as an adult, I don't always have that figured out. Can I challenge it a little bit? Go for it. I would almost be willing to admit, or um, I would almost be willing to guess you feel the feelings. You just don't acknowledge them. There's a difference between feeling it and admitting it, acknowledging it and showing it to other people. Everybody feels it somewhere in their body. They just might shut that down a little bit. So they're not as attuned, but there's a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And if you ignore your anger long enough, you just pretend you don't have anger or fear or sadness, uh, your body will manifest it in different ways, in migraines, in ulcers, in back pain, in other things to ultimately get you there. <laughs> well, can we can we just say that <laughs> I may or may not have had several strokes at this point in my life. And I'm really fortunate that the strokes I've had are very, very minor strokes. Um, they're, they're smaller than TIAs typically. So they're really small, but I've had some, some strokes show up. And I have a chiropractor who looks at me sometimes and says, your body is stiff as a board. Your muscles are locked up. I don't know what you're doing to yourself, but you need to stop. And uh, I think you may, may be onto something there. Absolutely. If you don't release your feelings and you just hold them in, your body will manifest it. 
in a certain different way, which is why a doctor should technically look at emotional struggles when looking at some of the um, physical challenges that people have. Because rather than taking a medication, if you can work on emotional regulation, those other things will go away. Yeah. And it's not helpful that I don't take hardly any medication either. So, so I just suffer through the struggles that come with it because, well, I'm smart like that. You know, that's, that's who I've always been, right? Is that the stroke talking? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, when the stroke talks, I usually have speech aphasia in the middle of that and, and the words don't make much sense. But I mean, that's also the other thing, you know, we're parenting lots of kids and everybody has trauma, whether you're in the foster care system, something is going to be perceived as traumatic for you. And so we have all these little ones running around and then we have our own baggage, our own trauma. And so a lot of times it feels kind of suffocating you know, I have several um, foster groups on my Facebook page that I just look at. And it's really disheartening a lot of times when I look at some of these posts and the majority of them are women reaching out, but they all have to start their posts with, you know, please be kind, please be gentle with me, no negative comments. And that's kind of the world that we live in that we have to like beg for someone to be understanding and to be gentle and show some empathy and I just find and it half so the time it doesn't even work. No, it doesn't. I mean, people just attack. And then we wonder why parents won't reach out, you know, or feel like they can't reach out because of just the judgment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when reaching out for support ends up in more trauma for you, eventually you just stop. And if your feelings aren't validated and your feelings aren't heard, eventually you just stuff those down too until something happens, either an explosion or you start having physical symptoms or you completely self-isolate. Yeah. It's, it's very, very sad. And our kids do the same. And actually, the one last thing I want to talk about the feelings board, because my parent coaching clients tell me all the time, my kids should tell me these things. You know, they're getting bullied at school or, you know, they're having, you know, problems with this friend or they're afraid of A, B and C. You know, they should they should tell me, you know, that their boyfriend or girlfriend is pressuring them into, you know, different things. And I was like, well, did you? listen when they were five? Because if you listen when they're five, they'll tell you when they're 15. And if you don't listen when, you know, when they're five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, you're just teaching them that they can't talk to you about these big things. So a lot of parents don't really see that connection of listening and validating to feelings and their children telling them about these really big, scary things in their lives. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we have one, one kid who's, um, who prides himself on honesty in those moments. Most of the rest of the moments, not so much. But honesty in those moments where, where he'll, he'll say, I'm not going to talk to you about that. I'm not going to tell you about that. Mm-hmm. You know, now, mind you, he has, he has some really significant traumas and, and, and we're yeah. dealing with a lot of stuff there as well. And probably, you know, black belt sized 
um, traumas that, that this kid's dealing with. And so you're hundred percent right. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if, if you listen to him all you want with what he's got going on, he's going to refuse to tell you what's going on in life. Exactly. And it also ties into, cause some parents are like, yeah, that's fine. Like, I'm just, I'm okay with that. But then I ask, what sort of relationships do you want your children to have when they're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60? Intimate partner relationships, relationships with their kids, relationships with their friends. You know, what what life do you envision for your child when they're 35 years old? And, you know, they'll tell me, and say, okay, so what are you doing today to help them have that life? Are you teaching them how people in intimate partner relationships work through challenges or do you hide that behind closed doors? Are you teaching them how adults repair from mistakes or are you just expecting other people to go along with it? You know, what are you doing to help them get to this ideal future that you have? And most of the time they just look at me like, whoa, wait a minute. (laughs) like well they'll just they'll just do it and it's like well how do children learn how to resolve things in in friendships and intimate partner relationships if they've never seen it play out yeah one of the more frightening things i learned in my life is that daughters tend to marry husbands that remind them of their dad absolutely and that is quite the um that they their partners tend to end up looking like me, and I have to realize that I'm kind of choosing my my daughter's partner every day. Yeah. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. If you'd like to find yourself in a group with like-minded people, head over to Facebook, and you can find us at facebook.com/groups/fostercareuj. We've got a group over there where we talk about foster care, we talk about adoption, and we talk about all the things related. If your podcast player allows it, you can also reach down and hit that subscribe button so you get notified every week when we put up uploads. Every Tuesday, a new episode comes out. We'd love to see you next week. Now back to the show. You're you're choosing your daughter's partner every day, and you're showing her what she should accept for love for herself every day as well. You're showing that to all of your kids, in fact, and every parent is because children, they don't necessarily care what you say, uh, but they absolutely take in how you behave and how you make them feel. So parents and adults in the world are teaching children how to be adults by how they are adults. And if that's not alarming. I don't know what is. <laughs> it, 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 it could be a little scary. Yeah, I have a friend of mine, Jeremy Roadruck, who said to me once, "Oh man, you know, don't, don't worry about what you what you say to your kids. They're not listening to you, anyways. You should be terrified because they're watching you." Yeah, absolutely. Because as much as we think we know what we're doing, as much as we think you know, I give all this great advice. If I'm not taking it, man. That's a that's a heck of a strong model they're getting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, um, in your book, as I was reading it, um, there's there's a section about secondhand trauma mm-hmm. for people who don't know exactly what that means or what that looks like. Can you explain that a little bit? 
Sure. So secondhand trauma is the trauma that the caregiver or the other children in the home or anyone else who's involved in the lives of someone who has experienced trauma experiences themselves. And in the book, I talk about like children's trauma behaviors end up causing secondhand trauma for the adults in their lives. And it's true really by way of sharing stories and in behaviors that come out by consistently absorbing all of that energy and all of, you know, seeing all of those behaviors play out and potentially getting kicked by your kid or punched by your kid or hearing them scream at you and all of that. Those are all trauma behaviors. That's the result of the trauma that they've experienced. But going back to the brain, you can't just logically say, well, yeah, that's their trauma without absorbing some of it. And the more you hold on to those feelings and you don't necessarily work through it and find a way to let it go, the more your body absorbs that as secondhand trauma, which is why many foster and adoptive parents later in their fostering journey are diagnosed with PTSD, um, namely due to their children's trauma. Well, I'll go back and and use myself as an example here because I'm one of those guys who I tend to quote unquote, turn it off, AKA Mm -hmm. take it, shove it in a little bitty black box, put a chain on the box, throw it in the back of my brain and just pretend like it doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. I've been pretty good at that for a lot of years. However, as we discussed, some of that's (laughs) managed to manifest, right? (laughs) So, so when, when, you know, you're a parent who does that, or even a parent who, who on the other end of the spectrum absorbs that trauma and it really affects you negatively Mm -hmm. as a, as a, grown ass man, I should know how to handle all that. And I don't. And, you know, I think Amanda would probably agree with that. Possibly. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, you know, talking to the parents who are either on my end of the spectrum or over on the other side, what, what can we look at as far as how to, how to deal with that stuff as parents? Honestly, I think when, and I, I think I said this so many times in the book, but when you're parenting children who've experienced trauma, you need a professional support on your side to help you work through and release the trauma that you're absorbing, whether that is a licensed professional counselor, whether those are uh, support groups that are focused on healing and working through whether, you know, that's your faith group that's helping you work through those feelings or any combination really thereof, the adults need just as much support as the children do because it's kind of like piling, you know, a day's worth of cars on a bridge. You know, the bridge might be really strong, but you put all of the cars that go over it in one day on top of it and it's going to crumble. And really that's what's happening to all of these families is they're absorbing and absorbing and more people than you think tuck it in a little black box, put a chain on it and put it in the back of their brain until all of a sudden something happens, whether that's an internalized behavior or an externalized behavior. And it actually gets scary when it's externalized. That's when, that's when foster and adoptive families start being the source of terror for their child. And they don't even realize it. So, yeah. Well, well, I guess thank God that we found Dr. Tom. 
Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely. It's made all the difference. You know, we were at a pretty bad spot. Our our family was suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, we had lost our daughter, and it was like we just we couldn't even connect because we were all in our own phases of grief and showing them in different ways. And it really saved us just to have somebody that we could talk to. Absolutely. Someone who gets it, who doesn't judge and who doesn't walk away when stuff gets yucky. That's generally why I say a professional because that is their job. (laughs) And they have a lot of training for that. And we just, we do so well with Dr. Tom and, you know, we just, we love him. We love his, the way he talks, his sense of humor. I mean, he'll cuss at me. <laughs> and and it's like, okay, yeah. Like he's a real person. That's good. You know, not just somebody who's reading from a book, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, what the solution should be. Yeah, he's got a PhD and 20 years of experience. And and a friend of mine actually recommended him to me. And when he re- when he when he tried to describe me, he said, think about Marty McFly's dad. Only he drops the F bomb. Sometimes when it needs to be dropped, and I'm like, that sounds weird, and and he's right. I'm not going to argue with him, but you know, to all the people out there like me, 20 years ago, I would have told you all the reasons why you know seeing a a psychologist is stupid. You just deal with it, and you'll be okay. Um, I would have told you why you know nobody needs medication to get along um, because you just deal with it. You just you know, put on your, put on your work boots and and go do it. Take care of it. Let's go. And it wasn't until I finally found that I actually had a breaking point. I wasn't sure that existed, but if you keep, keep asking, you know, telling God how good you are, he will eventually show you where your breaking point is. Mm -hmm. And without having had some professional help in that, I don't know that, that I would have have survived it because good God knows that, that, you know, manifesting in some strokes with all this stuff for me was bad enough, but that was through some help. Absolutely. Can't imagine where it would be without help, you know? Unfortunately, I see what it looks like without help. And that's when other professionals intervene. So. So how do you, how do how does somebody who's in their hard spot right now realize when they need some help? If you don't, if you're not self-aware enough to see it yourself and you're not willing to listen to a spouse who says, Hey, (laughs) you're being a ginormous a-hole here. (laughs) (laughs) How do I know when I need help if I'm not self-aware enough to see it or willing to hear it from someone else? I think people need help before they know they need help. And I think if you are going to be on the foster and adoptive journey, it's just a set point. It's not a matter of if you need help. It's a matter of what type of help would be best for you. Because Dr. Tom's great for you guys, which is awesome. Like that's super great. You found your person. And some people don't want to talk about it. And that's something else that I talk about at the end of the book about different types of therapy that fit for different types of people. I mean, there's equine, there's art, there's music, there's body movement, there's therapy where you don't have to talk at all, such as like EMDR or brain spotting. There's so many different types of therapy and interventions that don't look like sitting on a couch for 50 minutes. And I think 
I wish it would be a requirement that as you sign up to be a foster or adoptive parent, that they require you to have some sort of professional support, but you get to pick which, which type fits for you. I think that would be an, a really awesome idea because <laughs> I know that, <clears throat> sorry, I know that Jason and I could have used that. We could have really, really used that. And now that we have services in place, it, it's great. But mm-hmm. for a while we were drowning, mm-hmm. you know, and there really wasn't anybody to pick us back up. You know, our caseworkers right. and, you know, they're not there for the day to day. And if you're too scared to say, hey, I'm drowning. You're not going to get the help, you know, but you're afraid that if you say I'm drowning, that they're going to be like, well, you're not competent enough to do this. Mm-hmm. That's really not true. We all just need some help. Well, and I think it's also like how you present that you need help. If people present it as like, I can't do this. I, you know, am horrible at this. And, you know, everybody is in danger. Your workers are going to be like, okay, we, you know, I don't know about all this, but if you're going at it of, you know what? Our kid has some needs and we want to make sure that we are best situated to support them who can't get behind that. And I think it's more along the lines of if it's proactive versus reactive in how workers look at it. Because we have to be honest, there are some workers who are going to be like, well, if you can't handle it, you know, what are you going to do? That's just the reality. Mm -hmm. So it's also important to know that it's how you're presenting it and making sure that the kids are safe. I think the mental health stigma is a big thing in there as well, because, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have a young lady involved in our life who we've known for a few years now. And she asked me once and she said, well, do you think I need a therapist? And now I know her backstory and she had, she had a really traumatic childhood. And I looked at her and said, well, Yeah. I mean, it was, it's, it's not really a question. It's a pretty obvious, you know, it's anybody could see this. You don't need any degree for that. And Mm -hmm. she looked at me almost offended. And she's like, what do you think? I'm crazy. Like, Hey girl, we got a guy, (laughs) right? We got a guy. So like, I I think you're maybe no more crazy than I am. How about that? Mm -hmm. But it's so important. But that mental stigma or that mental health stigma is what so many people push away from there because they're afraid that if you need help, then there's something wrong with you. If you can't handle this on your own, there's something wrong with you. If you can't handle being spit on, called names, you know, have all your hot buttons pushed, being, you know, yelled at and yada. Well, hang on a second. If, if what the way I've been treated and with by kids we've had in our home was something that was done in public by a grown man, I'm not going to say I wouldn't do something stupid, right? I, I'd be, I'd be awful. Like we'd suddenly, I'd have to be thinking about whether or not this is worth catching a charge over. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I'm not going to let some grown man treat me this way, but I do it in my house sometimes day in day out. And that takes its toll. And if, why wouldn't we need help dealing with that? I talk to people about their attachment style. So back to what we talked about last time, secure, ambivalent, avoidant, and disorganized. People who have a really high secure attachment style recognize that life can get hard 
And it's okay to have support. So when people are like, no, 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 I can't bring people into my life. I go, well, that's actually the reason that it's best for you to, because if you feel like it's a problem to get support in your life, then there might be some attachment stuff to work on as well. And we pass our attachment styles on to our children and we want to make sure that our children walk away with the most secure attachment. So maybe don't do it for yourself, but definitely do it for your kids. Sarah, I have one complaint. You seem to have a lot of things I need to work on. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to have me on the show anymore. (laughs) She's too mean to me. She told me I was crazy. (laughs) See, and I like that. You'll be back. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, you're you're 100% right there. We, We struggle with a lot of those things just in general as as human beings, that's one of the struggles that we all have. And, and we don't know about this stuff because our parents' generation, they didn't know about it. They right. weren't talking about that. And we look to our parents for a lot of things when it comes to child raising, even when we don't realize that's what we do. I don't know about you, but I have had those moments where all of a sudden I stopped and my child's looking up at me and I'm thinking, that was my dad. Oh, I just yelled yeah. at that kid. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we bring that stuff in and it's stuff that came from a generation before us. And, and we're not two generations before us and we don't even recognize it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, <laughs> I can tell you some of my grandfather's famous quotes. They were beaten to me as a child. <laughs> mm-hmm. And some of them were, were, were actually pretty smart. Like, well, you better learn because um, you're not going to live long enough to make all these mistakes yourself. <laughs> And that's, that's what I think what we need to do. We've got to find people who can teach us how to, how to deal with these hard things and how to deal with it differently than we have or our parents did or our grandparents did because, man, these, these kids who, who went through this trauma, obviously, it didn't fix everything because we still have lots of trauma left in this world. Mm-hmm. And I am doing a book club with a variety of people and we're wrapping it up now and then I'll be doing it again. But the book club is Parenting from the Inside Out by Dan Siegel. And each chapter, there's way more questions than (laughs) is easily doable in a day or a week or even two weeks. Um, But it's all about that reflection and finding out why when you open your mouth, things that you thought you'd never say come out. And figuring out how to kind of break that cycle. Yeah, that's that's one more thing that I probably need to work on. <laughs> well, I okay, mean, I'll stop. we're talking a lot about this book that you wrote, um, but I'd like to apologize because I don't think any of us have ever even said the name of the book that we're discussing <laughs> this whole time. Oops. It's called Welcome to the Foster Lane. How did you come up with that name? Well, my business is called The Foster Lane. So including the title and the subtitle, um, so it's Welcome to the Foster Lane, Parenting Advice from a Coach Who's Been There. And really, I wanted to tie it into the business that I have. And I chuckle about the fact that it really is a fostering journey that we are on together, even though we can sometimes feel alone. And that's where the name of my business came from. So this is welcoming you into 
my thoughts and my world and my parent coaching and the work that I do with all of my clients. I really like that. I love the fact that you you call it a journey because that's uh, when I was first setting up this podcast, I was talking with some, some friends of mine and, and a good friend of mine, John Wiley's a smart guy and he does marketing for a living. And, and he says, how about foster care and unparalleled journey? And I thought that's a long title and who knows how to spell unparalleled except for the math teachers, right? <laughs> I haven't spelled that word in a long time. And the more I thought about it, the more I went, no, I think that's actually the most accurate thing in the world. It's, it's a journey that's completely unparalleled. Nobody else, mm-hmm. even other foster parents have not walked our journey. Mm-hmm. It's complete, but it's exactly that. It's, it's a journey. It's, it's not a destination. It is, it's a lifestyle that you, you, you come into and you quickly understand that nobody else has all these answers, but if you're lucky, you'll find some people like, like a good foster parent coach who actually has been there, who has had teenage kids, teenage girls with trauma come into her house, who's dealt with this, who can help us along our own journey. Absolutely. I did really want to say after going through your book, I loved when I reached the end, how it was all summed up kind of like with a nice, neat bow. Um, You address all types of parenting, you know, Mm -hmm. biological, fostering, you know, step parents, kinship, adoption. You know, I just I love how you kind of gave everybody their own section Mm -hmm. and each one that I read felt very validated for that particular situation or that, that title. Um, how did you come about deciding that you were going to do that? Cause it just, it, it seems very unique to me because most people are just foster adoptive. That's not the outside parents or grandparents. Yeah. And so For me, it actually goes back to the first question Jason asked, for who did I write this book for, right? And when I was writing the book, originally it was for foster parents. It was, I was writing it to myself. And then I realized that there are a lot of adults that are involved in children who are in out-of-home care, and they all deserve to be recognized. And those letters were the last thing I added And I wasn't sure I was going to, and I really, oh man, did I ruminate over what the, what the little phrase was with each of them. And ultimately I decided that there are not a lot of places where these adults are seen. There's not a lot of places where these, these individual people that are involved in a child's life are specifically noticed and cared for. And I wanted this book to be that place. That's amazing because, you know, I, again, a good friend, I, I mention this a lot. I'm in a dad's group and I've got some amazing guys in there. And Jeremy Roadruck, uh, one of the guys I mentioned earlier, he, he's, he helps, um, with a lot of kids. He's, he's a really wild dude. He's got like a, he's a pan American Kung Fu champion and, and um, he's got some psychology background and NLP background. And he helps, he, he has a Kung Fu Academy where he helps young kids who a lot of kids who are in trouble and um, gets them on the right track. And one of the things I heard Jeremy say once, and I hope I don't mess this up, 
the six golden tickets he came up with is that everybody needs to feel as if they've been seen, felt, heard, understood, appreciated, and supported, and in that order. And we so often, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, we so often, we, we forget that right at the beginning, seen, felt, and heard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how many times have you told a five-year-old, though? I don't know about you, I know about me, how many times, you know, have I told a five-year-old, you know, stop it, no, nothing's wrong, you're fine. You know, there's nothing to be scared of. Be quiet, lay down, go, you know, and just dismiss their feelings. And they don't know that anybody has any idea what they feel or what they see, what the world looks like through their eyes or what, what they have to say. They, they don't feel heard. And you, you just set that whole process aside. And then you can't understand why, why they're not appreciative, why they're not, that they don't feel supported when, when they're looking at you and they just go, oh, I don't like this person anymore. I don't want anything to do with you. Yeah. And so your, your point is, here is really well taken that part of our job is to help these, help the kids. I mean, cause that's why we're here. If you're in mm-hmm. foster care or adoption, anything like that, you're here helping kids, but Absolutely. you can't help them until you feel those, fill those needs and begin to let them feel like they've been seen and felt and heard. Mm-hmm. And I I love that that's one of the things that you addressed for the parents as well, because I mean, let's be honest, I'm not much more than a big kid with not so much hair on top of my head and a lot more on the bottom of my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you can't see someone if you're trying to figure out what their experience is through your own lens. You have to set your perceptions aside and really take in what their experience is from their perspective with their words and with their level of emotion. Well, speak to that just a little bit, because as Amanda mentioned earlier, you know, she, she experienced a lot of trauma as a kid and all of us have our own level, some Mm -hmm. a lot higher than others, but how, how are parents able to successfully set their, their perceptions aside, especially when they walk into the situation with their own traumas, and, and be able to look at it through the kid's eyes. It's hard. It's actually hard for a lot of parents. And I don't want parents to feel bad if this is not something that comes easy to them. Because it's not something that's really ever taught. You don't generally see this playing out in many relationships. But ultimately, the idea is to pay attention to what's happening before the sharing of feelings, you know, are they nervous? Are they excited? You know, all of those different things, because that'll cue you in to how they're feeling. And then you match them emotion for emotion. And an example is your child is outside and they're digging in the mud as children love to do. And they find a worm. And they're so excited because little kids are so excited to find a worm and bring it to you to see their emotion and to see their excitement is to connect with that and go, oh my gosh, you're so excited. You found a worm. Like, what do you think? And how does it feel in your hand? And you match their level that they're giving off rather than having your perception of, oh man, do not put that in my hand. I do not want to touch a worm. Like go put that back. You're getting dirty. Like you're going to get your pants all dirty. You know, that's the adult's inner monologue. 
But think about what's going through that kid's mind. They were just digging in the earth and they found something alive that they can hold in their hand. And how exciting is that? So it's really seeing children through their lens and joining them at the level of wonder that's there. Because you might be 20, 30, 40, 50 years old and you've seen enough worms and you're like, yeah, what's the big deal? But that might be the first one that child has ever held. And going back to that level of excitement and meeting them there. And it also works for fear. So just because a clap of thunder isn't scary for you because you know what it is, you've heard it a million times and it's not that big of a deal, doesn't mean it's not terrifying for a child who has never recognized that before. So in that situation, you get rid of your like, well, of course it's thunder. Like it's not that big of a deal. And you meet your child or that was, that was a really big noise. And then there was a big light outside. You know, that's really scary when that happens. How are you doing? I'm here with you. I'm going to hold you. Everything will be okay. And really connecting with them where they are. I love that part about the parents' inner monologue because, and then you start talking about digging in the earth. And Amanda probably knows right where I'm going. <laughs> oh, with this. I do. Just, <laughs> I do. What last weekend? I think. Yeah. I was. We were sitting right here, and all of a sudden, my littlest guy, Frankie, he lets he they're, they're right outside on the front porch playing, and he lets out with one of those screams. And you know, if you know kids long enough, there's a scream that, that's excited or playing, or <laughs> the one that's angry, and then there's the one that's that just wants attention. And then there's a one, the scream that gets your real attention. The one that says something is really wrong. Mm -hmm. And he lets out with this scream. And I come out of the, out of my chair and head to the front door. And he comes in with his hand sticking straight out. And I'm, and he's like pointing at his hand and just blood curdling scream going on. I'm like, what is happening? And I look down and hanging off of his finger. Thank you, Google. I now know what it was. um, (laughs) A big headed ground beetle is what he found. And I don't know if okay. you know anything about he was digging in the earth. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I don't know if you know anything about big headed ground beetles. Cause I shouldn't, but they have these two big Huge. pinchers on the front that look like lobster claws, basically that stick off of the head. They're actually mandibles <laughs> and they're not poisonous. Again, thank you, Google for letting me know that. But then um, they'll take out a chunk of skin. Yeah. They'll, they'll reach out and grab a hold. I mean, like I had okay. to rip this thing off of him, you know? And then was it last summer? when the kids were outside playing around the pool in the evening and they were catching frogs frogs. and, and having a good time and chasing frogs. Well, as it turns out, we have a poisonous frog that lives in our area and it's not, I mean, you're, you're pretty safe usually as long as you don't eat them, which they're Mm -hmm. little boys. That's a, that's a question mark. But, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but that after they got done playing, they came inside with the poison that they excrete can be really painful if it hits in mucous membranes. Well, turtle who that i think he was six at the time reaches up and rubs his eye and gets that poison in his eye and he's like he's gonna die and it took a good long while for us to figure that out and the whole time in both of those instances well i'll say actually the one with turtle because it was the first one that, that really went that way that's a tough one to for me to keep my inner monologue inside mm-hmm. and tell it to shut the hell up because this kid's going through his own personal hell while mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out what in the world is happening. Why is he screaming? What happened to his eye? I'm trying to look in his eye and make sure he didn't poke it out or something. And I mean, cause that's yeah. what he sounds like, but I can't see anything. 
Mm-hmm. And it's not until you can quiet that inner monologue in those moments enough to see through their through their lens and understand their world that you know when when Frankie came running in with a beetle hanging off his hand, it was a matter of just grab it, pull it off, you know, mm-hmm. wish it not too bad, so you can still get a picture and go to Google. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I mean, just to just to backtrack a little bit, we did find out you know what was going on with Turtle's eye. And we ended up having to flush his eye for several minutes and hold him down while he's kicking and screaming. And at that point, that was a medical emergency for me and everything that I had experienced with our daughter. Mm-hmm. It took me right back to being at yep. children's hospital and those feelings. And here I'm having to hold my child down. And so I'm crying and, you know, it trauma is real and PTSD mm-hmm. is real and it just takes a moment to be back in a space where you had no idea that you were getting ready to travel to. Absolutely. And I love that you mentioned earlier that these are the reasons why we need to be prepared before this happens. Because you never know when the poisonous frog is going to hop into your backyard or the little big-headed beetle is going to grab a hold of your kid or whatever your, your moment's going to be. You never know when that's coming up. And you can't prepare for it when it happens. Exactly. So I, I love the advice that, that you've had for us here. Um, we can't thank you enough for, for sending us this book. And well, I'll get my turn to read it now that she's. I finished. Yeah. So now I get my opportunity to go back and, and read it. But, you know, these are the, this is the information that parents need. And I just want to say thank you for putting that out there, for setting up a space where parents who are wise enough to choose to learn can come in and pick up a book, learn some things, and then step back into their real life with knowledge that will help them do it better. Absolutely. I'm glad that you both are reading it. I'm glad Amanda was able to read it. Jason, I I hope you get to reading it. (laughs) I did enjoy it. And I think that a lot, a lot of parents out there could really benefit from this book, not just foster parents, not adoptive parents, but all parents, grandparents, you know, it, it goes across the board and there's something in there for everybody. And I love that the techniques and the strategies that you put into your book are very easy implemented. You know, Mm -hmm. you can do it really easy with simple stuff at home, journals and all that. I just, I think across the board, it was a really good read and a lot of good suggestions. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for coming and talking to us today. And I'll make sure that there's links to all this on the, uh, on the podcast notes. Uh, I don't know if Apple's fixed it yet. Apple's had something weird going on as they're trying to, trying to do what Apple does and, and control their world. And the links are not always working. So if somebody wants to uh, wants to find this and you're using an Apple device and the links don't click, you can always copy and paste or you can go to fosterCareNation.com and and find the uh, the links there will be will be working when I put those up because I can control that. I can't control Apple. <laughs> Absolutely. And the last thing I want to say is your support group in your area might meet on Saturday mornings. My support group meets every other Wednesday evening. So if y'all ever want to join, it's on Zoom. Um, and it's actually findable on Eventbrite nowadays. So awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what, I'll have to find that and I'll put a, a link to that as well because I know after the last time you were here, I had a couple people contact me looking for information about that exact uh that exact group meeting. So 
Yeah, then my website got all wonky and it was nothing but trouble. So Eventbrite is just easy for everyone to find and everyone to use. So Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, Foster Care Nation. Thank you for listening to Sarah's story. Now take her knowledge to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have an account over at Buy Me A Coffee where you can support our mission for as little as a couple dollars a month. It's at buymeacoffee.com slash fostercare. The links to everything are in the show notes or on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always... You are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening.